Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Reed Hoffman grew up in Palo Alto, California and had an early interest in philosophy. After studying philosophy abroad, he realized he wanted to make an impact on the world. He was a member of the board of directors during the founding of PayPal, an electronic money transmission service, and would later co-found LinkedIn, the business-oriented online social network. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Reed Hoffman reflects on how LinkedIn came to be and his new book, Masters of Scale. Hey, Reed. Yes. It's Carlos. Hi, Carlos. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, James Manyika is a good common friend uh, of ours. And I think we've got a few other uh, good friends in common as well. Yes. And James, uh, James is awesome. I literally just spent a couple of days with him last week. Oh, nice. Where were you guys? Uh, well, we have his place up in, on, in the San Juan Islands and he came up and visited and we we talked, you know, the future of work and artificial intelligence and, you know, all the things that James normally talks about. <laughs> Do you know what years ago I worked at McKinsey and uh, I was leaving and I had a wonderful boss, Bill Meehan, who you may or may not have met. And uh, Bill took me to breakfast at Stanford Park Hotel, which you know well. And Bill said uh, something like, you know, you and I don't have the same problem that James has and that he's a genius. And I was like, whoa, speak for yourself. Don't leave me out quite yet. I want to be in there. So, but, uh, but, but you were right. James is a, uh, one of the world's good people. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, if, 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 if I, if I had a dollar for, for every time I recommended him for a board or something else, I, uh, it would be a lot of money. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, he is the uh, best of the best and Sarah, and I cannot believe that their son is in college. It's frightening. I used to visit their house uh, and he would be asleep. He'd be so young that they were like, you know, he's asleep. He's not even coming out. And it's crazy to think that he's however tall he is and in college. So, yep. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, MIT. 
Yes, correct. Right, 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 right. In fact, the tree may have gotten bigger and stronger uh, yes. this time around. So yeah, he's a uh, he's among the world's good people. Did you guys meet at Oxford, or where did you and James meet originally? We met um, kind of uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, I wish we'd met at Oxford. We were we were there overlapping, um, but um, part of it is I was not. I was trying to meet uh, like he would have counted because of global, but I was trying to not meet Americans. I was trying to meet global people. And so I was staying away from the Rhodes crew because, you know, that's heavily U.S., even though it has Commonwealth. Um, and uh, and so I didn't actually meet him there. But it was later, I think, um, at a conference. I think it was one of the tech conferences. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What a what a good soul to come across. And and you're a Bay Area native. Is that right? I'm, I'm a fourth generation Californian, and I was born in the Stanford Hospital. No way. Wow. And what was your what were your folks doing over here? Were they were they techies? Were they what what brought them to this side of the uh, this side of the bay? So um, my great paternal grandfather was a newspaperman for the L.A. Times and wrote Westerns. Um, and um, and so that's kind of the other side. And then my uh, mother's father uh, immigrated uh, from Austria. Uh, and then, you know, the usual kind of things get you oriented at the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, when my when my father's uh, father bought his house, it was the first house in the in the orchard, right? Because, you know, Silicon Valley used to be known for its orchards and cherry blossom tours and so forth. So, so it's kind of a, a, a long-term uh, Californian. And my father was a law student uh, at Stanford when I was born. So I was literally born in the Stanford Hospital. Oh, very interesting. So he had an interesting class, um, I bet Max Baucus, the former senator, probably was in his class, and a few other interesting people were probably there at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and did you ever think about law? Was that ever on your uh, your path, or no? Huh. Uh, uh, insightful question. So both my parents are lawyers. Um, my father from Stanford, my mother from Berkeley. And uh, when I was asked when a child what I want to be when I grow up, the answer was not a lawyer. <laughs> because I had a bunch of upfront and close personal experience with this. And uh, the law, the legal profession actually has the highest uh, uh, percentage of people who, you know, go get this, the, the, the training, you know, the elite education, the bar exam and practice and then transfer because it's long, grueling, tedious hours usually where you're kind of a paid gladiator because you're paid to be the, you know, fight for me. And so, you know, people start that because they're smart and they're educated and they want to do important things. And they go, not this. And so I I got to see it up close and personal. And I was like, you know, there's got to be other things than law. Right. Well, you know what? That is, uh, that's good that you got to see it. My version of that was I was a uh, copy boy at a law firm in Miami, and I got to see up close and personal because they often didn't pay attention to the kid who was coming around bringing mail, and so they were very open about how unhappy they were. And so I got to see that kind of up close and personal in a way that otherwise I would not have. Yes. Yeah. And so how did you end up, how did you find yourself in technology? Was that the next most obvious thing, given that you were growing up in in Steve Jobs' backyard, uh, metaphorically speking? Yeah, well, they're not quite backyard, but Palo Alto's close. Um, the, uh, so the benefit was I ended up going to Stanford, and I probably wouldn't have thought about it. I mean, like all young boys of my age, I was programming the Apple IIe, and I was kind of playing with it, and technology was very interesting. Although for me, technology has always been a tool 
to how do we navigate better lives as individuals in a society, not an end to itself. And so I, um, uh, you know, and I was thinking about, uh, I went to high school, the Putney School in Vermont. So I got my independence, you know, the, the, the away from home early. Um, and then uh, I was like, oh, okay, um, Stanford looks like it combines this really elite education with pragmatism, with a, with a kind of impact in the world. And actually, in fact, I chose Stanford because of the first year, like I decided I'm, I'm a great student of decisioning and have been my whole life. And it was like, okay, how do you pick colleges? Well, pick your first year. And I was like, there was this program at Stanford called Structured Liberal Education, which was this nine units, two thirds of your, of your freshman year with 150 people in, in seminar that included philosophy and history and, and politics and economics and art and, da, 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 and you know, all together, you know, from the Greeks to the present. And, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to go do that. But it turned out that by going to Stanford, I also got much deeper in the tech industry. And so I could see what the leverage of tech is, how tech is scalable, what how tech shapes the world, how it becomes the platform. If you want to geek out a little bit to Star Wars, it's the it's the tech is the mitochondrians of the force that you know kind of binds us together and shows us mirrors of who we are and allows us to do things and and makes us like it's kind of like you know we say homo sapiens, but to some degree it's 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 sapiens as you know technologists, right? So it's kind of because as, as we we evolve ourselves through technology as we do this, and I learned all that at Stanford. So I ended up majoring in this thing called symbolic systems, which is basically artificial intelligence meets cognitive science. And so, I want to go back to the decisioning question, because I love the fact that you call yourself a student of decisioning, whether someone's thinking about getting married, whether someone's thinking about how to raise their kids, whether someone thinking about, do you quit a job? Where do you live? What are the two or three most interesting things you feel like you've learned about decisioning? Well, there's lots because it's, you know, I'm a little older now and been, been you're always learning. Um, let me start with the first one, which is kind of when people ask me, like, what's the piece of wisdom that I got um, from my parents? Um, and, you know, there's a bunch, but like one of them is uh, very early. And I think this is the thing that caused me to start really studying decisioning is my dad told me the challenge about making decisions is it reduces opportunity in the short term, but it's the only way you get opportunity in the long term. Because when you say, I'm going to do A, not B, then all of a sudden B is no longer an option. Or if you return to it, it's a different kind of option. And that's part of the reason why people tend to emotionally want certainty around the decision, because you're giving up stuff by making decisions. But that that is the only way that you create really good long-term opportunity. And I thought that was really good. And so I started thinking about like, and that's part of what got me to apply to and get into boarding school on my own and then tell my parents I want to go, you know, it's like, okay, decisions about like, what are the things that need to happen and, and what are their consequences? And then the other one is um, a similar reflex, but not quite the same is that most people tend to want to decide within call it a, a binary context. It's like, risk-free or risk completely managed, or this is like, everyone tends to tell themselves, this is the absolute best decision. The absolute best decision I could have made in the world is to go to Stanford. The absolute best decision I could have made in the world is to start LinkedIn. And there is no such thing as an absolute best decision. Like we're, we're in Shakespeare, where these, 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 these actors and actresses who are playing this one act uh, cold stay upon the stage and you're making the decisions and improv as you go and you have to kind of roll with it. You have to learn and so on. And so, so intentionally recognizing and taking risk differentially, right? So, um, you know, kind of like saying, hey, a risk can be a very smart thing to do because you can have a 
uh, an impact or a meaning in the world and in life that you really want to take. And I think that's probably that kind of of thinking is probably what, you know, before I even knew what entrepreneurship was that kind of got me into entrepreneurship. That is such a bold idea. And and if you haven't put it on something, that that phrase, a risk can be a smart thing to do, that actually could open up a lot of people to the idea of risk who up until now, for good reason, their parents themselves and others have said, don't do the risky thing or try and stay away from risk. But you're reframing it and you're offering it as a door into somewhere interesting uh, could be really that that could be a really valuable phrase to a number of people. Uh, Thank you. I may actually even because yeah. I, I may not have said that phrase exactly, but my very first book called The Startup of You, um, which I started as a commencement speech to my high school on, in, at Putney, which is what do I say to a bunch of 17 year olds, <laughs> right? you know, Internet entrepreneur and investor? I was like, well, approach your life like an entrepreneur approaches their their career, their work, their company, and be the entrepreneur of yourself. Uh, and that was the thing. And I only write commencement speeches. And people said I should write the book, so I wrote the book. And there's a whole chapter on intelligent risk taking because that's the way that you can by by owning it, by like steering into it, making decisions intelligently, you can make a very big difference. Worst decision you've ever made. <laughs> okay, how long do we have? <laughs> um, probably. Well, it's it's a funny thing. I mean, it's very hard with how lucky and fortunate and serendipitous I've been in my career and life to look back and say, boy, that was a bad decision. Cause you're like, well, but maybe that was important for where you ended up. And so, um, and so, you know, the whole question is like, I was like, wow, maybe I want to be an academic and I need to test it. Those are good because testing is part of risk-taking decision. So, you know, I'll go to, I'll go to Oxford and I'll study philosophy and maybe that'll teach me about thinking and language and you know maybe I'll be a public intellectual and and an academic um, and then I was like oh that doesn't have any scale impact um, and so what I did was I stayed there for for kind of three years you know kind of completed the degree and kind of did that even though I knew that I wasn't I wasn't like this wasn't the path this isn't where I was going I was going to go somewhere else and um, to some degree, it's the go and, and start on those paths, beyond the paths. And if I had come back a year or two earlier, like had wrapped up, got, you know, got the one-year degree or you know, that kind of thing as a way of doing it, then I would have been even earlier in the beginning of the internet revolution within, within um, you know, kind of Silicon Valley. And this is the thing. Most people think about bad decisions as, oh, I did this and I had this really bad outcome. And by the way, those are sometimes where those are the really bad decisions. But the thing they miss is where's the bad decision where you missed possibly huge opportunity, huge upside, huge change. Like, for example, when people ask me as an investor, like, what did you most regret investing in? It's like, well, hey, you invest, you lose your money. The mistake is not investing in Pinterest, not investing in Snap, <laughs> right? Those are the mistakes. The mistake is, is the, oh, I should have done that. Not, oh, I did that and I shouldn't have, <laughs> right? Interesting. So, so what would you put at the top of that list then? Would you say it's it's Pinterest and Snap, or is there something else that when you think about? Uh, it, and and I'm very purposely leaving this open for you to define it 
however you want. And, and I particularly think not only about your experience at PayPal and LinkedIn and obviously Greylock investing in lots of companies and now at Masters of Scale, getting to talk to lots of interesting people who have who've become masters of scale in one form or another. But, but, but given that you've got all that context to use and to put to work, where would you identify your biggest, uh, your, your worst decision or your biggest mistake at this point, understanding that hopefully you've got many more years to make more? Yes. Um, well, so I always try on every big decision, I postmortem it. And it isn't only in failure, right? It's in success or failure. I go, okay, which parts of the decision were good, which parts of the decision are bad. So literally every single decision, every single investment, every single pass on, a, on an investment, et cetera. And it's part of the reason why I quickly realized the decision wasn't, oh, I invested in this and I shouldn't have. I should have done better referencing on the entrepreneur. I should have realized that, that this kind of investing in a difficult space like education, even though it's a really good thing to change the world, is very difficult because the customers are difficult and the capital flows are difficult and, and so forth. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you kind of do all these lessons you learn. But what I realized was actually, in fact, those are in the noise. The real question is, is when, you know, like I had met um, uh, ben Silverman and and Paul Shiara early in in the Pinterest days, and they came by my office at LinkedIn, and they said, "Hey, this was before I was a VC. I was doing angel investing, and I said, hey, we got this new thing, and I didn't realize it was a new medium that pinboards were a way of of expressing themselves. It was just like an essay post or a picture or something else that it was a that it was an important new co- composition. And if I had realized that, I would have said, I want to invest. Like I want to invest as much as I possibly can." And that would have been, you know, an amazing result. And these are great entrepreneurs that I've, both, I've become friends with since, and would have wanted to go on the journey with, and you know, and 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 kind of that as as portion of doing it. And so, you know, but 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 by the way, I wasn't kidding when I said, well, how long do we have? You say, well, how many mistakes have you made? Well, you know, a hundred. <laughs> you know, like how how long do we want to talk about it? <laughs> Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Take me back to LinkedIn for a moment, because I've read about it and I've heard it secondhand, but might as well hear it firsthand from you. How did you end up starting LinkedIn? And at what point in the journey did you know it was going to be a success? So, um, so I was part of the founding team of PayPal. Um, PayPal, uh, all... The, the vast majority of very good, uh, big tech companies have valley of the shadow moments where you're like, oh my God, we're going to die. Why did we ever think this was a good idea? Um, why did we think we were going to succeed? Why do we think we were the right people to do this? And PayPal certainly had that moment. So um, uh, Peter Thiel and Max Levchin and I um, uh, kind of went and did a little offsite in my grandparents' cabin, and and we're like, okay, what should we do, <laughs> right? And 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 you know, kind of charted the plan for becoming a master merchant. And as part of that, I said, look, if PayPal blows up, we're all going to have a lot of tar on us because we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars of capital, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we should we should we should talk about what the next best idea is. And I pitched a version of LinkedIn then, right? Because it was kind of like, hey, if this doesn't work. I've learned from having done my earlier startup social net that there's this transformation of the work world and people aren't thinking about it because part of the, the, the central lesson, you know, you see this a lot in Masters of Scale is being contrarian and right um, is how you break through the noise and create something very large. And, and be, everyone's focused on social as like dating or community, which are important, but like they're not thinking about work and network. And that's that's the thing I think that 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 as a new platform could be really good. And then of course, PayPal worked. And so it was working, sold it to eBay. And then I, I, I said, oh, you know, I should take some time off. And I went, wait a minute, nobody's done LinkedIn. And the time is still, this is, this is the fall of, of 2002. 
and it's still there. It could still be built. Uh, okay. As opposed to taking a year off, I'll take three weeks off, <laughs> right? Um, and, and we'll get going. And then when did you know it was going to work? Right out of the gate? Did you have that conviction and now you had um, a couple of experiences under your belt and you had been around, you had money in your pocket, and so you, you felt a level of conviction that it was going to work? Or even, even at the outset, even with all that in the background, you weren't sure it was going to work? So I'm one of, there is a class of entrepreneur, maybe even most of entrepreneurs who the way they talk themselves to risk is they go, I'm certain it's a good idea. I'm certain I can make it work. And then they project certainty in all quarters because it's how you get everyone to come with you, investors and, and employees and partners and customers and all the rest. I'm actually one of those who sees risk very clearly. So when I started, I was like, well, look, I got an idea. There's a whole bunch of things by which this couldn't work. Because I always ask myself with this decision, with this path, if it works, why does it work? If it doesn't work, why does it not work? And then if you don't see anything about why it doesn't work, then you're blind. You're just not, you're flying blind. So I had a bunch of different, like, oh, this could totally fail in, in my idea. But I had a specific kind of what I call the theory of the game, like how it is I'm going to play out against those risks and why I know something that the world doesn't know and, and competitive entrepreneurs don't know. And what's the, what's the thing that I'm playing in order in order to do that? And I'd say where I knew that I had something was when I got virality working, because the big risk was, could you build a network of people where the, the people are in this network that's, that's how do you navigate your work career and find interesting opportunities and match talent with opportunity? And I was like, okay, we got a big enough network now that we'll be able to build something. And then when I knew it was, uh, that it was really something was when people started using it beyond the use cases we designed it for. It's part of the platform. And the, the first one was this really interesting, innocuous one, which was, you know, people always think of job searching as, well, I decide I want this kind of job at maybe one of these companies or this industry or this kind of a good job at this company. And then I find my way there. And the thing that LinkedIn adds to it is an ability to, to get like a, uh, like a connection to someone who can help me, you know, kind of give a reference in the company and that kind of stuff. Well, this, this engineer decided to want to move to Denver and they said, hey, I don't know what co which companies I want to work for. So I'll look at which companies hire people like me and then I'll look, research those companies and then I'll decide which of those companies that I want to be at. And that's an, a, 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 a people professional platform. You know, that's one of thousands and thousands of uses in this. And it was like, okay, now we're beginning to get that creativity on top of the platform where people are using it and now it'll become an essential part of the tool set by which people live their work and live their careers. When you look back, I had an interesting conversation with your friend Ron Conway a number of years ago. And at the time we were talking about what was a still young Twitter. And he said something really unexpected to me, which he said, you know, Twitter's a huge success, billion dollars in revenue, you know, it's hit virality. People use it for use cases beyond what people originally expected, et cetera. And he said, and therefore, it's hard for me to say what I'm about to say, Carlos, which is that it could be even way more successful. It could be three times more successful. And he said, but it's hard for me to say that to anyone in a way that they can hear because it's had such outsized success that having a conversation with them about the fact that it could be 3x is not one that they can easily get to. When you look at LinkedIn, is there any part of that? Is there any part of you that says, I'm enormously proud? probably one of the 100 most important and central companies in the world today. It, you know, I touched it today. Lots of people touch it, and as you said, touch it for a variety of reasons. So we're, we're grateful to you. It, it introduces us to people. It, 
It inspires us because we see other people's things. Sometimes it helps us find a new job, move to a new city. All sorts of things happen. But is there any part of you that, as proud as you are, says, you know what? We could have been bigger, more impactful, different, and I wish we had done X. Well, there's a whole bunch of things that I'm still hopeful that LinkedIn will do. I mean, part of the um, the combination with Microsoft was, um, I think the best way to approach companies, and you'll obviously see this in lots of the Masters of Scale episodes and, and the book and everything else, is we're all servants to the mission. Like there's a mission that this company's on. It's a, it's a transformation of the world that we are making. And, um, and so part of the decision was, LinkedIn will have a bigger and stronger transformation of the world combined with Microsoft. Uh, it'll be able to integrate into all the work platforms that Microsoft has and bring in that expertise of finding other individuals. It'll be able to bring in technologies that are super expensive to invest in, like artificial intelligence that Microsoft is one of the leaders in the world in and bring that into it. And you know, I, I, I never would have, have, have engaged in the transaction if I didn't have, hadn't got to know Satya for years before and I knew he was special, right? Um, even before now, everyone in the world knows it. But like, like I had gotten to 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 know it early, and so that was kind of all the decision. So I don't have a, a regret on the combination. But on the other hand, there's tons of stuff to still do. I mean, I'll give you a tiny little example that I'm still hoping for to see, which is. So everyone knows who thinks about reference checking that, that LinkedIn is a great way to check references. Like you want to hire someone or do business with someone or then else like, hey, is this person ethical, reliable, a good partner, knows the stuff that they're doing, all the rest, all that stuff. I would love to have employees reference checking their managers. Would because you know part of your success and happiness and everything else is, is the manager like a good manager. Well, LinkedIn allows you to do that. I have yet to hear that asked in an unaided way, right? But um, but like that kind of thing. And so there's and there's just tons. There's 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 so much to still do um, that you know. And, and Ryan Ruslansky, who's the new CEO, is a product guy, and so I have confidence that he's working on it. And we talk about it every so often. But like you know, like the the like I suspect that I like when I when I am uh, beginning to shuffle off this mortal coil. I'll still be looking at LinkedIn going, oh, there's still a lot more to do. <laughs> um, uh, a little bit of a turn in the road here, um, Reed. Most of us will never get a chance to be a billionaire. When was the moment you became a billionaire? And what, if anything, were you surprised about when you reached that unusual place, that unusual status? Because I assume when you were studying philosophy in the UK, that was not necessarily number one on the list, right? So I assume that you weren't someone who was always plotting, planning that. So, so what was it? When did it happen? What was it like? And what would you tell to the rest of us is true about when that happens? Well, so unlike some people, because a lot of people who who become you know kind of who who go from middle class to to uber wealthy are very focused on getting wealthy. I've never really been focused on it. I am focused on the value of money, first for independence and freedom to be able to have my own time and shoes, and then to have money to do projects and have influence in the world. And then, you know, I've become, since moving from academia to the business world, a great student of what are the, the great things and the challenges around capitalism? How does it need to be reformed and, and, and improved upon? I mean, I generally, the critics, I'm generally unsympathetic to because they're not, they're not proposing a better alternative. So the best thing is how do we improve it, right? How do we make it better? Uh, and what are the ways to do that? And um, and so for me, like, 
like I don't, I can't track an exact date because I wasn't really paying attention. Uh, I was paying attention to what kinds of things I'm building and what kinds of influence in the world I'm having and what the mission of the company is and what you're doing. Um, now, I, I just as I also was kind of not thinking of myself as like an entrepreneur or a business leader, I was like, I'm just trying to make stuff happen in the world. And so then it got reflected. And so it's like, you know, like I get this question. And the sh short answer is, you know, I refer to this as Spider-Man ethics. With power comes responsibility. And if there was one thing that I could wave a wand and improve in the American psyche is to not believe that wealth is only my own individual thing. Like the, that when you get to wealth, even when you go from middle class to, to building it all yourself, it isn't, the system allowed you to do it. The, 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 this, this great place in Silicon Valley with venture capital and, and talent and rule of law and, 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 and technological platforms and all the rest of the stuff and the invention of the internet, all this stuff is the stuff that allowed you to do this and that's a social infrastructure. So really what you've done is you've earned the custodian rights. Right. And as part of custodian, of course, if you, hey, I want to I want to I want to have a vacation and go to Fiji. Of course, you've earned that right, too. Um, but with power comes responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. And so as to think it's not just mine. Everyone piss off. It's OK. I'm the custodian. What's my role in society? What are the things that I should be doing? And that's part of the reason why, you know, later become friends with people like Bill Gates. And so because, you know, as that as that template of we should go and contribute to the world in directed ways that apply to our capital and to our knowledge is something I think is, is really fundamental. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, particularly over the last year and a half, Reed, with uh, some of the conversations around social justice and where do we go from here, is if we were at a moment where we not only thought about the next year, but we thought about the next 250 years and we started to think about what could America 2.0 look like if we took this as the first chapter and we said, you know, there are lots of opportunities to be better. And and if we had a new constitutional convention and not only had, you know, Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson, but we had, you know, Hoffman and Manika and Coates and Gladwell and Laren and, and um, DuVernay and all sorts of people, what would you put on the agenda? If we were having a fresh convention and we were saying lots of stuff we're proud of from our first 250, lots of stuff we think could be better, now let's look freshly forward, not just for a year, but for the next journey. What would be two or three of the things that put us in Philadelphia again, if you want? Um, you know, you know what, what would you put on the table for us to think about in terms of building that next America? Well, one thing I think um, is America's, uh, I have a phrase that I use, permanent beta, which is you're always improving, you're always iterating, you're never finished, you're always learning, um, would be kind of like to have that kind of constant revolution, right, is, and, and renovation, really, more than, because we should all be institutionalists, and we should all be renovating the institution, because, you know, revolutions, where you say, declare your zero, those, like, everything from the French terror to the cultural revolution, those are terrible, <laughs> right, so it's, it's, and sometimes everyone's frustrated by how slow it takes, and they're frustrated, like, oh, we've been trying to reform this institution for 50 years, and it's still racist, sexist, you know, whatever. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep working on it, <laughs> right? Renovate, renovate, renovate. Because the the declare year zero, all student, all, everything in history is 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 catastrophe. And so, um, and so that kind of thing, and, and building that into the Constitution, uh, building that into like you know, we have this weirdness where, well, the popular vote doesn't di- dictate the president. Like, obviously, it should be the popular vote. Uh, like, you know, one person, one vote. Uh, you know, we have this weirdness around, you know, not instantiating the every single citizen, it should be easy to vote. Um, we don't have kind of the notion of the society needs technological platforms, right? So like, for example, you know, um, making it easy to participate, like, like, nope, nope, we have to go down to the wait in, late in line for the DMV versus just being, you know, like, like having it all by, you know, on online platforms, for example. I mean, you know, some of these things are very serious and some of these are little microcosms, but like all of this stuff. And like, I, I would love it if every 50 years we had a new constitutional convention. Now, you wouldn't throw out the constitution because I'm not sure we could get around to creating a new constitution. But you would say we have a referendum on what are the things that now need to improve? Like, what are the things that that need to be as part of this to 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 revivify and restore and renovate the American dream each time? Because that American dream, that is the thing that we say it's not it's it's what we aspire to be and what we aspire to learn to become. That's part of the thing that I think is the the 
the genius of America and, and the reason why it's worth trying to own patriotism, even when you see these other people trying to own patriotism by, you know, like, like propagating hatred. And you're like, ah, that, that's not the America, right, that we work for. I, I, I love that. And I love so much of that, including permanent beta. Uh, I really like that, too. And I love that notion of renovation, which I think is actually a very tangible and relatable idea. I think there's a lot of, of, of richness to that. Talk to me about Masters of Scale. What made you decide to do that? I could guess, but I don't want to guess. And you're doing it with some people who I really, really like, including Darren. So you're doing it with good people. I know that there was that involved. But but how did you end up deciding to do uh, what started as an innovative podcast and now is also obviously going to be a book as well? Yep. So um, so the, the the three books before Masterscale I've, I've written have all been like the, the business world as I found it. Individual careers, startup you, um, entrepreneurial people um, joining and belonging and being managed by corporations, the Alliance, and then blitzscaling. Why is half the NASDAQ created in the Bay Area, which has a population of three and a half billion people? That's not the tech industry, that's the entire population. Why is that? And what are these patterns of scale? And what, what, what do we learn? And then what can we be learning and improving? And so scale had been the thing that I had been focusing on. And uh, June and Darren, you know, uh, awesome people, change agents in the world, called me and said, we have this idea for a podcast. And I was like, oh, podcast, that's a good idea. I've been thinking about other medium and, you know, addition to books, and they were much smarter than I was, like podcasts. They, they were identifying this moment of revolution where that kind of thing. And, I, you know, so I, I was, I'm the talent. I was long for the ride on that. But it was like, look, I understand scale. And every major problem, literally every major problem is a scale problem. And by the way, it's also a technology problem. So that goes to how do you do scale and technology? So that's the kind of thing that we should really focus on. Because whether it's climate change and fixing that, whether it's economic justice, whether it's uh, criminal justice, you know, all of these things, whether it's, it's racism in society, uh, the new needs of education, all of this stuff, it all comes down to problems of scale. And by the way, obviously, some of it ties down to, especially in America, but generally is, is where does the business world also play into this? So let's let's do this. Um, and, and you know, I thought I was going to just do some interviews, a bunch of smart people. We're going to publish the interviews. And they're, of course, creative geniuses. So they got to, you know, like original music and, and all the rest. I was like, really? Oh, OK. <laughs> right. Um, and then the reason why we got to the book was because. Um, there's a couple of different things. So audio is great on all kinds of ways. It's personal, it's story, it's, it's, a, it's a direct connection. Books create a different way of learning, a different way of systematizing, uh, like a team or a company can all read a book together and cross-check it uh, kind of more easily than kind of like everyone have learned to listen to the podcast at some point and then come together. Uh, some people learn that way. It allows you a density of information because in audio, you really need to be having a conversation. So you're not speaking absolutely as fast as you can, and, and you're not going 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of having a conversation, you know, even though it's a broadcast in it, whereas the book, much more dense. And so it was like, oh, well, we should add the book into the mix. And, you know, we also are doing courses uh, and other kinds of things to, to maximize the democratization of entrepreneurship. So if the people, because entrepreneurship can be learned, right? I'm not sure it can be taught fully. So what we're doing is we're creating the environment by which people can learn it, right? But, but how, do you, um, how, do you, um, uh, how do you enable that? And that's part of the reason why the book. What's the most interesting thing you've learned doing Masters of Scale? Because again, you've written three books, you're a graduate student, you've been an investor, 
So someone could argue that in some ways this is a harvesting uh, as opposed to kind of a growing period uh, for you. But, but what, if anything, have you learned uh, uh, over the course of doing so many interviews and, and now writing the book? I'll say three things. Um, uh, so one, um, I used to be kind of a boring public speaker because I was like, I write a speech and I read the speech and I go, I'm a little bit bored by reading the speech. And one of the things that, that, that having June and Darren kind of coerce me or trick me into being talented and performing, this is something you know very, very well, is, hey, if you don't show your interest, your passion for this, your, like, your, your dynamism, right? Well, then why should the other person be interested? So that's a kind of like a personal lesson that was a surprise. The, the, the second on the podcast was that, um, that even though I know entrepreneurship very well, I know scale very well, um, there is always learning and refinement, even on how you build culture. And, and you can find it in the surprising places. You can find it in the, 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 the um, you know, like in places you wouldn't have necessarily expected. So like, for example, um, when I was talking to Tyra Banks, uh, you know, part of the thing that I, that I kind of saw there was she approached her supermodel career as an entrepreneur. Like she was thinking about competitive differentiation. She was thinking about what is what 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 do the models do? How do I play to my customers? What am I doing? It wasn't just that she was obviously beautiful, but she was smart and strategic. And I was like, wow, that 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 like the kind of plays everywhere. And you see that across things. Franklin Leonard as a systems thinker in Hollywood with a blacklist. You know, like these things were like really amazing and great. And then the third, in turn, doing the book was you always have this, this effort to try to, and we'll see, we're going to, this we're going to have a test uh, and see if this works, but like trying to distill mindsets, frames, provocative catalysts, questions to, to be contrarian and right, to be, how can you stimulate a certain amount of innovation and creativity and how you approach these things by like such things as why is hearing no important? Cause you normally say, no, no, I want to hear. Yes. I want to be able to be enabled. Where is knows important? And how do you make that part of your daily activity? And when you're investing and you're hearing knows, why can that be a good thing? Um, and, and that kind of thing to help people learn this stuff. And, and so for me, the test here in the book is, will this, will this be a mechanism that will help people? Because that's like part of creating entrepreneurship is how we're going to create the future. When you think about your episodes, I know you just mentioned Tyra and 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 Franklin, but give me a couple of other episodes that, for whatever reason, stand out to you. Either because you enjoyed them, because there was a big lesson, there was a surprise, because that's where you would start a, a high school uh, uh, set of students off on. G- give me a couple of episodes that stand out for you in addition to those two. All right. Um, so one that I learned something from it was very funny. It was when I. It was, I learned not to have, not to listen to so-called common wisdom and bias or be very careful about it because common wisdom usually isn't wisdom, right? It may be common, but not wisdom. And, um, and so I was interviewing Mark Zuckerberg and I had, even though I'd known him, I was one of the earliest investors in Facebook um, and Greylock was an investor and, you know, all the rest. Uh, I had internalized the, the, the buzz in Silicon Valley that Mark Zuckerberg had finally grown up and learned, and he had changed his principle from move fast and break things to move fast with stable infrastructure. And that's because he finally learned. And that was kind of when the backdrop of my head, because everyone had said it. And so I asked him about it, because, you know, learning. And he said, no, no, it's the same principle. Speed is what really matters in entrepreneurship. Speed at scale is still what really matters. Um, it's part of how you run this race and you win. 
but the question is, is if you stay at the move fast and break things, you're breaking things, you're moving slowly. So you have to make sure you're moving fast, but you have stable infrastructure. That's what still causes a fast learning curve. And I was like, right, you're totally correct. And I had allowed myself to be blinded by everyone else's little bias about finally the young person has learned. It was like, no, 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 no. The young person's smarter than that common wisdom about how these things play out, you know, kind of you know, early kind of thing and thing about blitzscaling and everything else. And then as another, um, you know, episode, I'd say, you know, maybe um, Bob Iger um, on, you know, kind of branding because like my interview with him, you know, I've known Bob for years, you know, obviously a storied CEO, um, you know, love him and he's great and all kinds of things. It was like a masterclass in how to think about brand, right? Because I'll give you a classic common wisdom thing that I didn't make a mistake this time. It was like, why does Disney do cruises? Disney does, does cruises because it's a way of making more money off their brand. Because that's why, you know, an average person on the street thinks about it. Bob thinks about it entirely differently. He doesn't engage in any piece of business in Disney. Now, obviously, he's not CEO anymore, um, but doesn't engage in any piece of business without thinking, how does that increase attach rate across all the properties? So if cruises don't have people coming off and going, oh, I really want to go to the theme park, or I really want to watch more Disney movies, he doesn't want to be in cruise business. So each thing causes you to love the thing more. And that's a very good way of thinking about a portfolio when you're doing brand. And by the way, it's part of why, of course, Bob has this genius about his acquisitions because he goes, well, actually, in fact, we buy Pixar, we buy Marvel. And if people go, oh, I love this. And this will actually, in fact, you know, be, um, um, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, um, you know, kind of like cause me to love it more and cause me to identify with it more and cause me to want to see the other things, then or do the experiences, and then that's the thing I do. And that's, a, I think, a very good thing for brand. And, you know, instances of things I've learned. Um, ounce per ounce, the best entrepreneur you've ever met. And again, th these are the Hoffman rules. So it, it's, it's however you want to judge it. But ounce per ounce, best entrepreneur you've ever come across. So the short answer is there isn't such. Um, because... What I think of, I usually talk about these things. I talk about them as CEOs or executives or entrepreneurs as world-class, e.g. there's none better, but there's a class of people there. Because I could easily say Elon Musk, who has done magic in creating super hard projects, Tesla, SpaceX, et cetera. I could easily say you know, Zuckerberg as a person who, you know, just like Bill Gates, another amazing one, who dropped out of Harvard and created a platform in a small number of years for the world with literally never had a, you know, had a full-time job before, right? You know, as an instance, um, you could say, you know, folks like, um, you know, Miriam Nafisi, who thinks about marketplaces and networks in really, really interesting ways. And so, um, you know, so all of this stuff is, 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 is like, I kind of go to world-class and then I don't compare them within them. I just go, these are the people we should learn from. Of course, why it is we select people to be on masters of scale let's play crystal ball uh for a minute uh look forward for me once upon a time we love futurist alvin toffler and the rest uh who i'm sure you you know of and and may have uh future shock future shock <laughs> um um uh, this is the reed hoffman edition uh look forward for me 20 years 50 years 100 years whatever increment you want and tell me and everyone else who's watching two or three interesting things that you expect that we will see watch enjoy experience uh, you know, come to know. 
So two things I say about the kind of prediction of the future. One is it's the greatest way to seem like a fool because you make specific things and then it's always different. Like, so for example, in the fifties, we'll have flying cars, but actually we got the internet. Now we're getting flying cars, obviously with Joby. And so you kind of make those kind of mistaken predictions. And then the second is the future is sooner and stranger than you think. It's another part of that, which is it's things that start happening that you weren't quite anticipating that suddenly have a big impact on the world. And so, you know, I think that, for example, you know, one of the things that, you know, may, may be happened because of the pandemic and all the rest is that intersection of software and biology may suddenly make, you know, the just-in-time manufacturing of vaccines and other kinds of things suddenly, like, very present. Like, that intersection of a biology and software, I think, is suddenly going to be, like, people aren't really looking at it and something's going to be huge because it wouldn't have been without a global pandemic where people said, well, gosh, like we need this kind of stuff. We're willing to take some risk. We're willing to, to ease up on some restrictions on innovation in order to make this kind of stuff happen because we need that in order society to function. I think another one is, is like people don't realize the speed of acceleration. So you get to kind of artificial intelligence and, and you know, part of how software and data is transforming the world. Well, it's gonna touch every industry. Every industry needs to have a software data artificial intelligence strategy. And you're going to see all kinds of different things. And obviously, some of the bets I've been making as investors, autonomous vehicles, you know, with kind of Aurora and Neuro, because, you know, that's part of the, the me as an investor, you know, having those thoughts and going and doing things. And then I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, there's obviously a bunch of storm and drawing around cryptocurrency. Um, I wrote a piece in Wired UK in 2016 or 2015, something around there, which is we will have uh, global cryptocurrencies, which will be a good thing and even a good thing for government. And we're iterating our way to them because it's just an extension of the platform on the internet. And I think those are all things that will be components of the future um, that will be strongly there. Um, but I'm certain, positively certain, there's going to be something I didn't mention here that's going to be huge that was just like, oh, that's the sooner and stranger. Interesting. So we are going to have data-infused, just-in-time vaccine that you pay for with crypto. Yes. Okay. That, that would that, That's probably a more elegant way of, of, of my little like, well, there's this and that and that. Yeah. No, I, but, but I love those and, and I feel those moving in different ways. Reed, can I do a little rapid fire with you? You mind if I hit you with a variety of things? Oh, great. Your favorite movie of all time? Oh, all time. Hudsucker Proxy. It's the uh, fairy tale of entrepreneurship. Although, just because I, like certain movies that I totally love, Monty Python, Life of Brian, King of Hearts, Equus. Anyway. Uh, your karaoke song. <laughs> uh, I don't have one. I sing so poorly that um, I actually have never done karaoke. Oh, interesting. Most interesting thing you've learned in this life about dreaming fearlessly. Uh, well, we mentioned it a little earlier, which is... Uh, take risk deliberately. Like, 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 go, where is a risk that I could take that could be big? Because that's a risk that's survivable, et cetera. And I think that's probably the, it enables you, it, you steer into it, enables you to dream, you know, huge and fearlessly. Your next big dream. Um, I've been playing around with I've got some ideas for utopian science fiction plots because, you know, the world is what we build it and we shouldn't be fearful of this future. We should be building towards it. And so, you know, I, I have a bunch of friends who are much more talented at this than me, but, you know, maybe. What you learned from Trump. What I learned from Trump is that um, a couple of things. Um, so one, not the obvious stuff, you know, uh, public reality star, you know, democracy is selected. It's a problem, et cetera. 
but sometimes, by the way, being bold and crazy can enable kind of good things, whether it's interfacing with Korea or other kinds of things. And that there is there is stuff that can come out of that. Um, and that um, and that unfortunately, we're still even though we'd hoped like post-World War II, where we think that people would realize when do you stand on moral principle and take some personal political pain? We still have too many people who are just playing the political game. You know, they know that 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 he had terrible governance, but they're still playing that game because that's the the the, the purpose. And we should always say, well, what are your values? What do you what do you stand on? When I say no code, you th- you say what? Um, well, there's a bunch, um, but it's the modern AI platforms uh, for generating code. And do you believe that we are in a no-code era, which will allow a whole broader set of innovation versus previous times? Yes. Uh, and it starts with accelerations like Microsoft's Copilot or OpenAI's Codex. Uh, but it starts with those innovations. And then it isn't that the coding goes to zero. It's that coding gets amplified. It's now this coder can do what five years ago, they can now do 10 times what they could do five years ago in a, in a day. And is it just coding or is it even, I was having a conversation with my friend, uh, Mark Mader, who runs Smartsheet. I don't know if you know Smartsheet, but, but we were having a conversation about other kinds of tools like project management tools that may in fact do some of the acceleration. Uh, totally. And like one of the ones that I've invested in is called Coda um, as a kind of a platform for doing this. And so like the, the, the new platforms for enabling everyone to create new kinds of productivity, it's like the Coda thing is, where docs have the power of apps um, in order to do this. And I think that's that's part of the future. Last two questions. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would you love to have dinner with? Well, to some degree, dead's much more interesting because, you know, like that would be, you know, stunning. And, you know, whether or not it would be, you know, uh, Socrates or, or Marie Curie or, you know, any number of, you know, the Buddha, <laughs> right? Any number of, of, of interesting people. Um, if you said, you know, today, um, you know, I have dinner with a lot of really fascinating people um, that I'm fortunate to do, you know, probably um, like a really interesting artist or, a, or, or somebody that I, like, I don't know who they are yet, um, but would, would show me a different lens on the world. Final question, most fascinating political leader you've ever met? Uh, personally, for me, uh, President Obama. Um, uh, one of the things that I frequently do when I'm talking to people generally across not just politicians is ask them essentially first principles questions. And so I, you know, I, when I was having dinner with um, uh, President Obama, I asked him, I said, look, if you could wave a wand, almost like your constitutional convention earlier, and change three things in the system, what would you do? And it was like, well, eliminate the filibuster uh, because it, it, it causes a lack of progress in the U.S. and causes one party to hold up the other. Um, you know, kind of incentivize voting to get everyone to vote and feel like they're owners in the in the democracy. And the fact that he had these answers on the tip of his tongue meant that he was a first principle thinker about our constitution, about our society, about how we, we come together. And that was like, that was like, great. Yeah, constitutional law professor. Exactly. Indeed. Um, uh, Reed, what an absolute pleasure. As I said, uh, our mutual friend, James Manika has uh, sung your praises for the longest time. And now I'm happy to text him uh, to say that I've gotten a uh, gotten an experience myself, so real real pleasure to meet you. Me as well. I look forward to our next conversation. Me as me as well. Me as well. Have a uh, have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Take care.
you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to find us on the iHeart Podcast app or Apple Podcasts. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.